we know that you will love this podcast. So shut your mouth and listen to Canadian Bushcraft. Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave. Hunting is coming up. For those of us that are trying to find a more ethical way of procuring meat, hunting is a great option. And fishing along with that, trapping as well, if you want to get into those things. But hunting is a way for a lot of people to learn the nuances of animal physiology, biology, mentality, and a way for us to become closer with our food. Just like the local vor movement and just like gardening for at home yourself and foraging, hunting is a way to become more connected to your diet. And there's a lot of people that agree with me on that. There's a lot of newcomers to hunting. If you listen to some statistics, which honestly statistics can be interpreted any which way stats want, uh, the person wants to interpret those stats. If you listen to some statistics, they're stating that hunting is on a decline. Less people are hunting now than they were 40 years ago or 20 years ago. I don't know if I fully buy that because every year I meet at least three or four people that are saying to me, hey, I just got my gun license and my hunting license. I, I don't know what to do, though. I, I took the course. I got all the stuff. I've done all the things. Wh what do I do? Or I meet people that say, hey, I want to get into hunting. What do I need to know to do it? How do I hunt? And so this episode is for them. This episode is for those people that are trying to learn how to hunt and learn what they got to know on hunting. So I'm going to go down a few things in detail regarding what things you got to carry, what things you should have, but also what legalities you need to follow and what things you have to understand in those legalities. And a lot of this will be covered in detail if you take a hunter education course. Now, what I'm going down is what we use here in the province of Canada that I live in, which is Ontario. Other provinces and territories will have probably different pro uh, processes and policies. And in other countries, there are going to be even more differences. So be mindful of that, okay? But what we use in Ontario and most of Canada is we follow a hunter safety course and a firearm safety course. And after that, you are ready legally to begin getting ready to hunt. Now, if you are not planning on using a firearm, which is a, a weapon that uses a powder discharge, a gunpowder discharge to send ammunition downrange to kill the animal, you don't need a firearms license. So if you are not using a, uh, the definition in Canada, I believe is as long as the weapon is above 500 feet per second, it is considered a firearm. So if the ammunition or the projectile leaves the round, uh, leaves the barrel going faster than 500 feet per second, or I believe 500 feet per second plus, it is considered a firearm for hunting. Okay. So if you're doing that, you need a PAL, you need a possession and acquisitions license. And that's a federally regulated license. You have to take the course. You got to go through a whole bunch of stuff to make sure that you are legal to own a gun and per and purchase a gun and carry a gun. But if you're planning on just bow hunting for the rest of your life, you don't need a pal. However, 
I do recommend that if you want to be able to have subsistence hunting, to be able to feed your family year-round, you go, you're going to want to get a gun. Bows can only do so much for you. And at the end of the day, I love bows. I love archery hunting. I do. I love crossbows, recurves, compounds, longbows, flatbows. I love them all. But if I need to bring a lot of meat home, I got to go and get some ducks. My daily limit of ducks is, let's say, I can't remember the current regulations. I have to read them uh, because duck season is so far away. I haven't been keeping up with it, but it's coming around the corner. Uh, I believe it's between five and six ducks a day. You're going to have a hard time doing that with a bow. And in some cases, you can't hunt certain animals with a bow. So be mindful of that as well. So if you want to be able to procure meat throughout the hunting season, you may want to get a firearms license as well. So the first thing you're going to want to look into is your PAL, your Possession Acquisitions License. That's done through a firearm safety course, which is federally regulated and federally enforced. Once you've done that, you can also, uh, usually if you're lucky, you can find a school or a course or a company that is taking, that is doing an all-inclusive course. So you'll learn the hunter safety course as well as the firearm safety course. And that's great. There's a local one to us. If you're in the Peterborough area, check out Guide to Game. These folks are awesome. They're badasses. They know whole lot more on the legalities and details behind hunting and they even do guided hunts for you as well so you can go turkey hunting with them deer hunting with them etc but they also run courses on the firearm safety courses including the non-restricted possession acquisitions license the restricted possession acquisitions license uh they even do a bear safety course where they teach you basically how to run and gun in case you're being attacked by a bear and you got a shotgun or a firearm so that's phenomenal. Take a course like that. Get the not that particular, but get the the try to find the all inclusive courses because that way you get everything done in pretty much a weekend. You can do a, a three day or four day class that does the firearm safety course as well as the hunter safety course, and you get tested on both. And if you pass, here's all your paperwork. Mail that into the government, whether it's the provincial, which is your hunting. Uh, your hunting license will be provincial, your firearm license will be federal, and that will all get processed. And once it's all back, you can begin getting ready to hunt. You can start p- paying for your hunting licenses, your tags, which for different animals. So if you're going to be going for waterfowl, that's actually a federally regulated system, but you're going to get that. You're going to get your f- waterfowl license, which is going to allow you to hunt ducks and geese, uh, and in some places, sandhill cranes and other birds. But it's your migratory game bird licenses. So I call it waterfowl because that's mostly what we hunt here in Ontario with a migratory game birds license. That's federally enforced. You can actually get them at most post offices nowadays as long as you have your uh, hunting license with you. You're going to want to get your deer license, which is going to be a tag there. You may get a moose tag as well, depending on the year, depending on what you want to do. You can get a bear tag. You can get small game, which I recommend you get everybody get a small game license because there's always a bad day where you didn't get a deer but you saw a brown or a black squirrel or a gray squirrel so you can get those with a small game license as long as they're in, in season so hunting license firearms license and through those courses they're going to explain a lot more of what i'm going to go over very briefly they're going to go in better detail and help you understand them okay so first and foremost once you have your firearms license once you have your hunting license you can start purchasing your tags to know what tags you got to get 
and know where to get them for and know how much, uh, where they're, when you're going to be able to hunt these animals, you're going to pick up a copy of the regulations. Every year, due to biological surveys from field techs and field biologists, as well as uh, scientific research, as well as studies and case studies, the government, through the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry, will tweak the regulations and adjust them to make sure that we are not overhunting or harming a population with our hunting methods. So you can't just use a copy of 2012's hunting regulations and say, yep, this is all legal. This is the day that I can start hunting deer. That may have changed. <laughs> so make sure you get a recent, they annually, they, they change the regulations annually. They put out new regulations every year around January 1st and uh, January uh, 30th. You'll usually see them sitting around in copies, copies of them in paper. You'll find them at an M&R building or a, a Service Ontario building. You'll find them sometimes at a Canadian Tire and some hardware stores and fishing supply stores and camping stores and hunting stores. You'll find copies. You can also find them digitally online. You can download them right onto your phone so you can have them with you when you're out hunting. So if you have a question about legalities, you can dive into the PDF file and start checking. Okay? So you're going to want to get a copy of the regs or the regulations. Read them, check the maps, and find out which WMU you are in. What a WMU is, is a Wilderness Management Unit. And they break them, the province of Ontario down into sections, and that way they can have specific rules for specific places. For example, if you're hunting in some areas, if you check the regs, you'll notice that it says you have uh, that's shotgun only for deer. Well, why? Why can't I take a rifle in there? Well, the reason being is you may be very close to homes and they don't want a bullet traveling a long distance. Shotguns are lethal depending on the style, depending on the ammunition, depending on the, the, the barrel. Uh, a shotgun can be lethal outwards to 150 meters. A rifle can be lethal for hundreds of meters. Hundreds of meters. And depending on the type of rifle and type of ammunition, it can be lethal for up to thousands of meters. Depending on the terrain, depending on the ammunition, depending on the barrel, depending on all these different things, a bullet from a rifle can travel further with more lethality than a shotgun slug or sabo or shotgun shot. So much so that I've gone duck hunting and there's someone practically 100 yards from me on the other side of the, of the pond and we're almost looking right at each other and I just shuffle down the, the, the shoreline a little bit and set up my blind elsewhere but I don't worry whereas if we were deer hunting or moose hunting and I see somebody else practically looking right at me I'm getting out of there because I'm not staying anywhere near where that person could possibly reach me with their ammunition with the projectiles coming from their gun alright so the WMUs will help you figure out what the rules are for the region that you plan on hunting in. And for some tags, like moose tags and deer tags, mm -hmm. you have to actually set up your tag for the place specifically that you plan on hunting, whether it's on private property or crown land. Okay? So WMUs will be fine in the regulations, and you can find more details on them there with the maps and the regulations per species in there. All right? 
So WMUs, regulations, your PAL, your hunting license, all that's kind of covered there. And most of that will be explained to you on a hunter safety course. So for those of you that have already done the hunter safety course and have done the uh, the firearm safety course, you're now here with me. We're, we're past all that. You know those things. You know the regulations. Maybe you've already paid for your tags and you've got your tags for this coming hunting season. What do we need? That's really the, the big question from a lot of people. I take a lot of people out on their first hunting trips. It's one of my favorite things to do. For me, it's kind of strange because I grew up with hunting. I never thought of it as just a different thing. I never thought of having to learn to hunt in detail. My father taught me. He showed me exactly what I had to do the first time I stepped out. I, I had done the hunter safety course. I had done the firearm safety course. Got my licenses, and I went out as a miner with my firearm with him. And he showed me every step of the way what I had to do. So I never had to learn beyond him. And I would just pick up things as we hunted with different people. I would see how this person hunted and what they carried versus this person, how they hunted, what they carried, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how I learned. So I just, I grew up with it. I, I never thought of hunting as a strange thing. I grew up, I think I was like four or five years old. My father was feeding us snapping turtle and frog legs. And we'd have ducks from my grandfather sent to us. And we'd have, like, we lived off wild game. For a good portion of the year, we lived off wild game. Not as much as, like, I do now. Uh, we, we still, you know, went to the occasional fast food joint or went to Chinese buffets and stuff like that. But we had it in part of our, it was a part of our life. It was a part of our diet. I never thought of it as weird. I never thought of it as odd to, to, to hunt. It, it never was a part of it. It was only when I became an adult that I started to actually question the morality, the ethics, the policies of hunting. And so now as an adult, every you know few weeks to a few months, I meet someone else that wants to learn to hunt. And I often get to be the person that takes them on their first hunt. And I can tell you, it is the most rewarding experience i get to feel like i'm guessing my father felt like on that first day every time so if you think of like four or five times a year i get to feel the the giddy excitement of showing someone the nuances of the hunt and that's beautiful i, I really appreciate that my father gave me that opportunity growing up and that i now get to share that with so many people every year so, you're with me here. What do we got to know to go out hunting? First off, we have to choose what are we going to hunt. Let's start with something simple. Small game and waterfowl. They're, the reason they're simple and they're, they're so great and why I want to talk about them first is because you're going to have to learn accuracy with your weapon very well with them. They're small things. They're small targets, not things. They're small targets. A duck is very small. A goose is quite small. You think a goose is huge, and they really are, but compared to a moose or a bear or a caribou, they're small. Big personalities, though. And a squirrel or a rabbit, these animals are fast. These animals are agile. You have to work with them all the while being safe. And so knowing how to hunt them makes you a better hunter for deer, makes you a better hunter for moose, makes you a better hunter for bear, uh, coyote, what have you. So starting with our small game and our and our waterfowl licenses and our hunting methods, the other benefit is they're longer seasons. Waterfowl starts pretty much the end of September <clears throat> and continues to the end of December. 
Same thing with small game. It goes for a long time, months. Whereas for deer, if we're strictly just firearm hunting, if we're just hunting with a shotgun or a rifle, not going to have archery involved, we get two weeks for deer, a week for moose. Uh, I think there's a couple extra weeks for bear in there as well. And if you have a muzzleloader, you get an extra week for deer as well for muzzleloader. Archery extends the season a lot longer from mid-October to the end of December. But even then, there's some challenges behind bows. So let's stick with firearms. And with that, we can do small game for several months and waterfowl for several months. So whenever people come out, they're like, I want to get... Just coming off the top of my head, uh, Tika T3 and 308, or I want to get a Savage Trophy Hunter in 300 Win Mag, or I want to get uh, a Marlin SBL 1895 Marlin guide rifle in 4570. These are rifles. A lot of people really want to buy a rifle, and I've had a lot of newcomers come in and they just they're like flat out, I want to get a rifle. I'm not going to get a shotgun first. I want to get a rifle. Okay. And then they go and get that rifle, and that's the money they had for the year for a firearm. Because you, you don't want to buy everything all at once. This is a cumulative purchases, okay? You can save up a few hundred dollars and get a firearm. Save up a couple hundred bucks and get a good hunting gear, so clothing and uh, scent killer and all that kind of stuff. And all the accoutrements that you're going to need. But you can't just go out, unless you have really good income, you can't just go out and buy several firearms at once. Um... And they get the rifle, and then they find out that, oh, small game, you can pretty much just use 22s and 17 HMRs, but they have to be on the ground, so that takes away a lot of the squirrel hunts that you're going to go on. You can't take grouse with a 22. You can't take uh, partridge with a 22. You can't take woodcock with a 22. Uh, they, these are animals that must be shot with a shotgun. And then when you go a waterfowl, you're definitely not using a 22. At least if you are using a 22, A, the MNR is going to send a CO looking for you, conservation officer. Second of all, I don't want to be hunting with you. So they bought the rifle and they wanted to get a big game rifle, right? So they can't even take those on a duck hunt. They can't take those on a squirrel hunt. On the other hand, a shotgun, almost any shotgun, whether it's 12 gauge or 20 gauge, you can purchase bird shot, you can purchase small game load, you can purchase buckshot. You can purchase slugs, which are basically a bullet, uh, a very cylindrical-shaped bullet that can be used against big game. So suddenly I have this weapon that can range from everything from dove to moose. Ethically and efficiently. And it, honestly, if you look around and you've, you, you shop around... And you look for a pump-action shotgun. Let's say it's a, a Remington 870 or a Mossberg 500. Whichever one it is. Those are the two top ten. Those are like the top two shotguns. And people always argue it's like Chevy versus Ford. Which one's better, the Remington 870 or the Mossberg 500? Uh, I, I used to get into that argument. I used to claim all the time that the 870 is better. And because I didn't like the barrels on the Mossbergs. And I didn't like the Mossberg Rattler. How they disassemble and how difficult they are to reassemble and all that stuff. Cool. But you listen to the debates that come from guys from Mossberg guns, they have similar complaints about Remingtons. So at the end of the day, I've come to the conclusion that it's whichever one you can afford and whichever one you can find that suits you, okay? If you don't like the idea of having a lot of moving parts that you got to really fiddle with to take apart your gun, you might not want a Mossberg 500. 
if you don't want to have to pay top dollar for every new part for your gun from the uh, from the manufacturer you might not want a remington and the Remingtons have gone down in quality since about 2003. So you may want to look into that. You might not want to buy brand new from a Remington. You might want to buy brand new from a Mossberg, but not so much a Remington. But again, whichever shotgun it is, whether it's a Remington 870 or a Mossberg 500, you can purchase those usually used for about $400. Okay, so you're not breaking the bank with this gun. And with that $400 invested in that firearm, you can then get a smooth bore barrel for it, and then you can buy some chokes if it doesn't already come with the chokes. And the chokes are going to con control how much spread the shot has, which means all those little pellets when you're going for a duck, they can spread out sooner or later when you're shooting, which gives you better range for certain animals. Uh, for something like a rabbit, you might want just an improved cylinder or modified choke. Something like a squirrel, you'll definitely want to use a modified choke. Something like duck and geese, I like full choke. So these different chokes will help adjust how your gun works. Now, for a couple of chokes, you're looking at 50 or 60 bucks. So let's say we now rack that up with all the different chokes and such you get 100 bucks more. So you've invested $500 into this gun. Now we're getting in the range of the cost of a rifle. 500 plus is usually how much a rifle costs as big bore or uh, something in the 30 caliber range or more. So your shotgun with all these little additions are usually cheaper than a complete whole rifle that has not doesn't even have a scope on it yet. Just a straight up rifle. Okay? So... Shotgun is the first firearm I recommend everybody purchase because you can shoot more animals with it and it's usually more cost effective, especially if you buy used. Almost every <clears throat> shotgun that I've helped people buy was used. There's a couple that were brand new because they just couldn't find it that fit their body. And most of the time, it's a 12 gauge. 20 gauges are fine. There's nothing wrong with the 20 gauge, and I'm very tired of hearing people say things along the lines of 12 gauges are for men, 20 gauges are for women. That's, that's, I'm going to say this, I don't like to cuss on here, but that's bullshit. First and foremost, almost every woman I go hunting with that carries a shotgun carries a 12 gauge. There's one exception, one exception, and I've met many men that carry 20 gauges, and guess what? Both groups shoot just fine, and they kill just as many animals as each other. The reason 12-gauge is what I usually recommend is because it has a lot more powder and a lot more pellets when you're shooting at certain animals. And therefore, it's going to be more lethal. That's the main reason. It's going to be more effective and more humane in dispatching that animal quickly. 20-gauges are not a wimp, though. You can take down geese with a 20-gauge. You can shoot deer with a 20-gauge. That's not a problem whatsoever. So don't be afraid of using a 20-gauge if a 12-gauge doesn't suit you. The only exception to the rule for me, like, I, I teach everybody, and here's the facts. No matter of your body, no matter of your gender, no matter of your sex or however you identify, you should be able to shoot a 12-gauge if you're taught properly. It's about proper education of how your body is to work as a shock absorber for that firearm so that when the recoil goes off, you are not injured or set in a bad situation. The likelihood of getting injured by the recoil of a gun is very minimal, but if you can't control the recoil, you won't have an accurate shot or follow-up shot. 
<clears throat> so when it comes down to it, I recommend everybody look at 12 gauges first. And if you have friends that have firearms, go to the range with them. Go to the range and try it out. See if you like a 12 gauge. Find out if that 12 gauge is going to work for you. If it doesn't, try out other shapes of them, uh, different makes and models. Like the Mossbergs come in the Mossberg 500, then you got the Mossberg Bantam, which is a miniature to 20 gauge version uh, of the Mossberg 500 that has a smaller stock. So that someone that's got a smaller stature can now hold that gun comfortably. Me, I grew up with a, a Remington 870 uh, Express Magnum. And that's what my dad gave me to use since I was 12 years old. <clears throat> Same stock from the get-go with a 14 and a quarter inch pull. 14 and a quarter inch uh, length of pull, sorry. Which is how far from your shoulder to the trigger. Okay, that's the, that's the main, there's a lot of other details to it. Basically, length of pull is how far from your shoulder to the trigger. So some lengths of pulls are longer, some lengths of pulls are shorter, and you're going to have to figure out which one is most accurate and comfortable for you. I find, because I grew up with it, a 14 and a quarter inch length of pull is just perfect. Sometimes you might want longer, sometimes you might need shorter, depending on your body shape and your stature. But that's it. The only person I know that ha carries a 20 gauge is a woman that I just taught to hunt this past year who's learning more and more on hunting and she purchased a Mossberg 500 Bantam because she tried out my Remington 870 and it practically, it didn't, but it practically bounced off her shoulder when she, when the recoil happened. And that's because it's such a large gun in comparison to her body size. She's a very petite person. That's all. That's the, that's the facts. It's not the fact that she can't handle 12 gauge, but it's the fact that when we went out firearm shopping after she realized that gun was too big, we couldn't find one small enough that was a 12 gauge, but we did find a 20 gauge. And she loves that gun. She absolutely loves that gun. So shotgun first. If you got to purchase, if you got to buy three different firearms, these are the three to buy a big bore rifle, a small bore rifle and a shotgun. Okay. <clears throat> now, some people will try and tell you that you have to use an autoloader, which is a semi-automatic shotgun. Some people tell you pump action only. Some people tell you for some reason that brake actions are the only true shotgun. Uh, these are all details you don't need to know to begin. Because if you realize that you don't like that gun, you can sell it. You can sell it back to a gun store, you'll lose some money in that. Or you can sell it to someone else with a PAL, Possession Acquisitions License. As long as the laws stand as they are still upon this recording, you can sell... As long as you have seen their possession acquisitions license, confirmed that they have a license, you can sell a firearm to someone else. Okay? So, what I recommend you do first, before you buy any shotgun or any rifle, is try some out. Try different guns, experiment with them, see what you like, see what you don't like. But I recommend the first gun you buy is a shotgun, not a rifle. Once you've got the shotgun and you've gotten pretty good at hunting small game with it, whether they're in the trees or on the ground or in the air <clears throat> for waterfowl and small game, now we can start looking at deer hunting. Now you're going to be putting a slug in that gun. Slugs have a little bit more kick than birdshot, I can tell you that. And that slug is going to reach out to about 100, maybe 150 yards or 150 meters lethally. Okay, so that is the range you've got. In Ontario... The majority of kills 
The majority of killed animals, whether it's deer or moose or other large game, is within 40 meters of the hunter. Okay? And this is the other reason I get behind the shotgun more than the rifle. And there's a lot of people I debate with that who are new hunters and old timers as well. But at the end of the day, the facts don't lie. Majority of animals killed in Ontario are killed within 40 meters of the hunter. So you don't need a rifle that can shoot 1,200 yards. You need a shotgun or you need a firearm that can shoot accurately within 50 yards or 50 meters. Okay? That's what you need to do. That's what you need to focus on. If you have long-range shots, if you're hunting in regions that have long-range possibilities or capabilities, then yeah, start looking at larger caliber rifles and start looking at good scopes and optics and also find yourself a rangefinder and binoculars and all that kind of stuff because that's the stuff you're going to need for those kinds of hunts. But starting off with small game and waterfowl and deer, you're going to need a shotgun. Okay? That's what you really are going to need. If you have only one gun to buy this year, buy yourself a shotgun. Preferably a 12-gauge, though 20-gauge is nothing to blow your nose at. Okay? And get good with it. Take as much time. The reason this episode is coming out and airing in June is so that if you've got your pal and you've got your hunting license and everything else done, and you've got all your licenses sorted, all your permits and such, now you can purchase the firearm is now is when you want to start training with it. And you want to train at least once a week. You want to go to the range, you want to go skeet shooting or trap shooting. You want to go you want to go to the range and shoot and sight in your firearms and get them trained now and practiced up to hunting season. You would not believe how many times I've seen people miss shots that they should have taken. They should have been able to hit the animal. And that includes me. That includes me. I have not shot a shotgun since uh, December for waterfowl. I have not discharged uh, a single shotgun or single rifle since December at the end of waterfowl season. And so, now that's June, if I had to suddenly go out on a duck hunt, if somehow, for some reason, the, the, the government said, hey, duck hunting is legal in June now, and I have to go out tomorrow to get a duck, I am not going to be ready to take that duck. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. In fact, after two weeks of deer hunting, uh, where I focused all my time on hunting deer and not waterfowl hunting, the chance I had, the opportunity I had to take a duck, I completely missed. Because I hadn't been training with my shotgun for duck hunting. So you have to train for hunting. you got to train with that weapon. Every chance you got to be safe and accurate and lethal. Okay? So, training with your weapon, whether it's a shotgun, a rifle, a muzzle loader, a bow, a crossbow, whatever. Whatever style of bow, whatever style of crossbow, whatever style of weapon, you got to train with it consistently until you are consistent. Accuracy is consistency. Okay? And if you're not getting consistent, learn. Go and take a course. Go and take a class. Take a shooting class. Get better. Take an archery course. Whatever it may be. Take it now. June. Not not October. Not September. Not just before duck hunting. It's the same thing as when I hear, like, what drives me nuts is when deer season comes around, uh, which is in Ontario, November, for firearms. And it's the weekend before deer season, and I'm out at my deer camp 
and I'm setting everything up and getting everything ready and the deer season starts the next morning kind of thing and I hear a dozen rifle shots in a row like bang 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 <coughs> and then 10 minutes later I hear another dozen rifle shots and then 10 minutes later I hear another dozen rifle shots I can't stand that because there's two things going on. First off, there's a hunter now out there that's just getting his gun, his or her's gun ready now. Now. Which means they're going to make bad shots. No matter whether that gun is sighted in or not or zeroed in now, they're going to make bad shots the next day if they have a deer kick up in front of them. Which means they're going to either injure it or miss it completely. Out of the two, I'd rather them miss it completely, but now we have a, a stray bullet going somewhere. But I digress. The other reason I can't stand it is now all those gunshots have gone off and they're within hearing range of my camp where I hunt. Uh, which means the chance of seeing a deer the next day is pretty low. I've heard everything from everybody about, oh, deer don't care about all those gunshots. Think of all the duck hunts was going on. Yeah, guess what? I don't hunt near where people duck hunt frequently because the deer get kicked up by that as, as well. Deer know what a rifle shot is. They don't necessarily know what a rifle is. They don't necessarily know what a firearm is, but they know that when that sound goes off, somebody dies. Simple as that. They know it. Okay? So when you have a bunch of firearms going off in your vicinity, you're not going to find an animal very long. All right. That's why in many cases, when I go for big game hunting, I go into back country. I don't hunt in the normal areas a lot of people hunt because that's not where, yeah, yes, people on the first day on opening day will have some dumb luck and get some deer or get some moose. Yes, I'm not denying that. Road hunters are what we call those folks when they stay within, you know, a two minute walk of their vehicle. Or a five-minute walk. There's nothing wrong with that. That's how my father hunts. That's how my uncles hunt. Because they're up there in age. They don't want to be too far from the vehicle in case they get injured or they get winded or they get tired. They don't want to have to, you know, quarter a moose and drag hindquarters two or three kilometers to their truck. But for me, I'm 30-something, right? I'm a young guy still, in my eyes at least. I have the ability to, you know, walk two, three kilometers with a deer, with a deer on my back or a moose hindquarter on my back. I can do that. I can still do those things. I can do backcountry hunting. And so if I have the capabilities for it, I'm going to do it. Same thing with deer in general. For waterfowl, it's a little bit different because the ducks and geese are migrating. The likelihood of you shooting at the same duck at the same body of water twice is very low very low so if you shoot at a flock of ducks or geese that are in that pond and they scatter and you miss them all if you go back to that pond the next day there's a good chance there'll be some ducks and geese in that pond again that's just the way of it not always the case but that's usually the way of it so let's stick with the small game and deer I try to light a match Let's get into the other things we need to carry with us. In the realm of hunting, we also need to think about safety. That's that's the reality of it. You know, way back when people first got back from hunting, hunting started to really grow in North America after World War II. 
and it again had a surge after the Vietnam War. And it's because all these guys came back from the war and they had been trained in two things, how to use a gun and how to camp. <laughs> That's the two things they basically had to know how to do. And so they came back, and what's a pastime that they could all do that they already know how to do a lot of that stuff? Hunting. And there were a lot of hunting accidents, and there was a lot of bad hunting that happened in that time, into the 80s. And so as the Canadian government and the United States governments began to make rules and training policies and licensing policies for safety, we see a large decline in hunting accidents and a large decline in poaching and a large decline in improper hunting techniques or unsafe hunting techniques. That doesn't mean they're gone, but the days of like comparing a hunter to Elmer Fudd should be long gone in our, in our day and age. Hunters are very safe. Hunters are very careful. And even if they don't respect the animal as a living being, they know what the rules are. Simple as that. And so, on that note, let's talk about safety equipment. First and foremost, if you are large game hunting for deer or moose in Ontario, you must be wearing blaze orange. What that is a special color spe in the color spectrum of orange. It is a specialized neon orange that you need to wear on your torso and on your head. So that at all times, 360 degrees around, people would be able to see you if they saw you out in the field. Now, even in the woods where visibility gets lower, that, that high-vis orange is necessary because people need to be able to see you. If I'm looking through the woods and I'm hearing branches snap and I look through, I don't want to see brown when it's a person. I don't want to see green when it's a person. I want to see the brightest damned color I can see. And that's blaze orange. Blue as well, but deer and moose can see in the blue spectrum. They can't see in the red spectrum. So wearing orange allows you to still be hidden from them all the while being visible to other hunters. So, blaze orange. Wear the blaze orange. Do you need to wear camouflage for deer? I don't think so. No, you do not. Um, in my years of hunting, I started off wearing blaze orange and camouflage and always questioning, why am I wearing camouflage if I'm wearing blaze orange? And at the end of the day, I concluded that Camouflage is great for waterfowl and birds in general because they have high, high visibility. They are very, very sharp-eyed. They can see almost any minute detail. If you're wearing a hunting jacket that's camo on one side and blaze orange on the other, and you're wearing that duck hunting, zip that right up to your Adam's apple or right up to your throat because any orange showing, they can see it. And as soon as that little orange moves, they know it's something that's not natural and they get out of there before they come within range. Turkeys, you try to move your hand turkey hunting, Say goodbye to that Tom. So orange is important. Blaze orange is important. Does camouflage matter? For waterfowl, I say yes. Uh, even for small game, I'll say yes. Wear your orange, though, when you're small game hunting because there may be other hunters out. Uh, when it comes down to deer and moose, honestly, I wear a plaid jacket. I wear a red and black plaid wool jacket. Um... Red is not in their spectrum of sight, so it's going to still not be very easily visible to them. And with the black and red, it makes a good pattern that breaks up my pattern from the deer, so they can't see me head on. And honestly, my pants are usually a pair of Carhartts. 
Sometimes tin cloth if it's really wet and cold, and sometimes they're just wool pants, whatever I've got. I don't care too much about camouflage for deer and moose. I know some hunters are really big on it. Uh, you look at folks like Stephen Ranella, who's a professional hunter, who's up there in the echelons with Yanis Patelis and uh, Cam and all these great guys that are part of the Meat Eater podcast and the Meat Eater in, uh, company. There, a lot of them wear camouflage for practically every hunt they go on. I'm, I'm not in their league, and I'm I'm probably not in their same uh, experience levels. But honestly, I have not seen enough reasons to justify paying top dollar for a bunch of camo that I've got to wear for deer hunting, bow hunting. Maybe, maybe I would consider wearing camouflage for bow hunting more. But there's some professional bow hunters out there that have talked about the fact that they wore plaid and they were able to bag as many deer as they did when they wore camouflage. So I think personally for me, it's more about scent than uh, than visibility when it comes down to a deer or a moose. If I smell like a human or I smell like a predator, that's more of a concern. And that's where you can get into scent killer soaps and scent killer laundry detergents and all that kind of stuff. Things that destroy human scent or replace and, and mask human scent with other scents and all that kind of stuff. And that's another episode we can get into closer to the hunting season. But for now, I want to talk about safety. Camouflage does not make you safe. Blaze Orange does. And that red plaid jacket, hey, it makes me more visible to the other hunters. I'm fine with that. Along with your blaze orange and other physical safety, like visible safety, we got to look into physical safety. We got to think about how we make sure that we can communicate and be found. We need to make sure that we have a survival kit with us. We need to make sure that we have a first aid kit with us. And we need to make sure that we have navigation equipment with us. So for signaling communications, what I carry is a signal mirror, a whistle, my cell phone, as well as... uh, uh, a small radio, a two-way radio, so AM/FM or whatever it's called, whatever the, the the walkie-talkies that you see at almost every camping store. I carry one of those, and we stay on a certain frequency or channel for all of our hunting companions. We all stay on that channel so that we can communicate clearly and effortlessly, and make sure that everybody is informed of what's going on. If we hear a big shot blast. Boom! Echoing through the woods where we're deer hunting. We all go quiet, but we quietly turn on our radios and put in our earpieces and listen. Because if we hear the phrase, brown is down, or I got one, we need to be ready to go and help that hunter get their animal out, or be ready for an animal coming our way that may have been running away from that shot. If they say, I shot at one, but I missed it, it's coming out towards the swamp, everybody at the swamp is now on high alert knowing that there's a deer coming their way, okay? So that's the main goal with a radio, is to make sure that everybody is shooting safely and make sure that we can coordinate our hunting tactics. The radio is also beneficial when someone might get turned around in said swamp. I have been that person, and I have met many of other hunters that have been that person who gets turned around and isn't quite sure where they are and they need to communicate with their hunting partners to make sure that they can find a safe way out of there to get back on track for the hunt. So being able to say on the radio, hey guys, uh, I'm turning around down in the bottom of this swamp. I'm not quite sure where I am. Can someone blast a whistle real loud? Like Chris, just for example, the name, or, or Sean. Sean, can you give me a whistle blast? And I hear a hell of a whistle blast off to my left. I know that's where I'm supposed to be walking towards, but that's to my left. 
So clearly I got to turn left and walk that way. And now I can communicate, okay, I heard you. I'm on my way to you. And that's part of the safety is I can coordinate things, both the hunt and my journey on that traveling through the hunt. Signaling is also good with the whistle blasts as well as with a compass, uh, with a, a signaling mirror and my cell phone. Cell phone being able to be used for texting when I don't necessarily, if I'm in good cell phone reception, I can text the other hunters instead of making radio calls that could potentially give away our positions to animals. So I can text Sean, for example, the name I'm just making up off the top of my head, and be like, hey, Sean, uh, I heard something crashing off in the brush to my right, and it sounds like it's going your way. You might want to get ready. But I don't want to, you know, startle the deer that's going his way by having his phone go boop, 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 with a phone call or his radio go off. I want to just simply have a buzz. He checks his phone and then gets his firearm ready or his bow ready for that deer coming his way. So signaling and communications, first and foremost. Actually, no, not first and foremost. First aid, first and foremost. There are certain ways a hunter can be injured when in the woods. There's a lot of ways, but there's certain ways that are most likely to happen. Contusions, lacerations, and gunshots. You can also get a few head injuries and stuff. The, the, the injuries can rack up depending on how you're moving in the woods or what you're doing in the woods. Um, for me, I'm usually the one dogging or pushing. So I'm usually the one walking around. So how I'm most likely to get injured is I'm going to trip and fall and get myself stabbed by a branch. Or I'm going to be, when I'm dressing a deer, cut my hand open. Or opening up a freezer pack full of food for my snack at lunchtime. And I cut my hand open on that. Or I fall out of a tree stand and hit my head. Those are the main ways hunters get hurt. Most hunting accidents are around those kinds of accidents. Very few are shotgun or firearm accidents, <clears throat> though they do happen. There was one that happened a couple years back near me in the Hastings area uh, or Havelock area where a gentleman was climbing into his tree stand with a loaded rifle, something that they teach you on the firearm and hunter safety courses to never do. Anyways, he began to fall, he dropped the firearm, and it went off and shot him in the leg and buttocks, in the phrase of Forrest Gump. That is a bad situation. <clears throat> Made worse that he was in the woods, and I believe he was on his own. I'll have to look more into that and investigate that more, because I have not heard, I have not heard much about the incident since it happened. But I believe he was on his own. If you're hunting on your own and you shoot yourself in the leg, you are in a whole world of hurt. Now me, when I'm hunting, I have a pack on my back and in there I have a first aid kit, food, all my extra gear and accoutrements that I might need. But on the outside of the pack, on my shoulder strap, I have a gunshot wound kit right there. And that gunshot wound kit is specifically there so that if I get shot by another hunter or I somehow shoot myself and someone comes upon me, they can try to save my life because the first aid kit is right there beside my face. So when they start doing my AB, the ABCs of my vitals, they see the first aid kit, which says first aid kit, and they can rip it open or it says gunshot wound kit. They can rip it open and start treating me and hopefully save my life. The rest of my first aid kit for cuts and lacerations and all that kind of stuff is in my backpack. But my 
direct injury wound kit is right there on my person, right out in the public, so everybody can see it. And it's in a bright orange bag, so it's not invisible to anybody. Because if I get shot, I want to get saved. Period. So first aid, first and foremost. Signaling communications right after that. Beyond that, navigation and survival kits. Survival kits, we're going to be getting into in another episode. We're going to be diving deep into what should be in your survival kit. But for now, you should know that you need fire-making tools of at least three different varieties. So what I carry is a ferro rod, a, a, a container of waterproofed, uh, waterproof container full of strike anywhere matches or stormproof matches is my preference as well as a Bic lighter. I have those all in my in my survival kit. You also want to have shelter tools. So 150 feet of parachute cord is great. Uh, a Mylar emergency blanket follow, or a, a space tarp is another good option. Uh, and what I carry in my pack is a tarp that is very small. It's a silicone impregnated nylon tarp that I can stretch out and make a roof over my head or make a windbreak. So that if I'm out hunting and the heavens open up and just start del making a deluge of rain, I can put up a roof over me so that I'm not going to be soaking, sopping wet while waiting for Bullwinkle or Bambi. On the other hand, if I realize I am lost out here and there is no way I'm getting out, I can set that up into a lean-to and have a fire in front of it and stay warm and dry. Beyond that, you're going to want to have some sort of water purification disinfection systems with a water bottle or a cook pot, things like that, that you can make sure that you can stay hydrated. And there's a lot more we can get into, and we're going to get into that into a in a specific survival kit episode, okay? But for now, we want to focus on getting a good night's rest and staying hydrated, okay? So if you're stuck out there, your survival kit should be able to keep you warm, let you sleep, and make sure that you don't die of dehydration, all right? Navigation, I carry a lot of nav equipment because I do not want to get lost. I've been lost enough times in my life. And we're going to be doing a special episode on loss proofing. And we're going to be talking in detail about navigation with compass and map as well as GPS. But for now, let's just know that you should have a map of the area you're in that's preferably a topographical, uh, topographical or topographical map. Uh, a very good compass. In fact, I recommend carrying two. Uh, one smaller little orienteering compass you can just keep in your shirt pocket, uh, and then another heavier duty, something like a Silva or Sunto Ranger, or a Brunton, uh, similar to similar to the, uh, the the three good brands of uh, compasses that I recommend are Sunto, which is S U U N T O, Silva, which is S I L V A, and Brunton, which is B R U N T O N. These three compass companies make very good compasses for navigation. And if you have two compasses, it's harder for you when you're in your panic to ignore what the compass is telling you. Because I have seen people where they get on a trip when we're doing bushwhacking and they get kind of turned around. They pull out their compass and it says north is that way. Well, they don't agree that north is that way. They think north is this way. But they, they, they will ignore the compass and say, no, the compass must be broken. It's not working. Well, if you pull out a second compass and they're both saying north is that way instead of this way... You kind, you kind of can't argue it anymore. So two compasses is better than one, and also you might lose a compass. It's not common, but it does happen. So two compasses, make sure that you're guaranteed navigation. And finally, a GPS unit. I carry a Garmin Fortrex, which is a wrist-mounted GPS unit. It's not cheap. 
but it's very accurate and that's what I wanted from it. It's what I use for when I'm go going on backcountry hunting trips, when I'm going into the crown land, when I'm going into high, uh, uh, high up into northwestern Ontario for moose. When I'm deep in the woods, I want to have a GPS unit that helps me track my trails, A, so that I can get back to where I want to go without having to necessarily pull out my map and compass again and again and again, but B, so that if I find certain things, I can mark them down and, and actually like put down waypoints. So that if I find, you know, if I'm traveling around, I'm hunting for moose and I come across a very fresh bed site and I see a bunch of scrapings from a bull moose, but I know that I've got to go back to, uh, go back to camp in the next hour and this moose ain't going to be back until morning. I can make a game plan by marking down that spot and going back to my base camp sitting down with my map, sitting down with the GPS, and maybe even my phone that has the app on there that allows me to look at it in more detail and get a game plan of how can I get in there at like 4.30 in the morning before sunrise so that I know, I know that I'm going to be there when that moose is going to be coming around at legal light. I need to know how to do that. And so I can look at the map, that topographical map, I can look at my compass, I can look at my GPS and get a game plan put together. So many times I've had to fall back on using my GPS and my map and compass to set up a game plan because I don't want to trust my brain to remember what foot trail I have to take to get back to that perfect spot. So just as a rundown, things that you should have with you beyond a firearm and its accoutrements are blaze orange, a survival kit, first aid kit, navigation equipment, as well as signaling and communication devices. Beyond that, you now have to learn to hunt. And that's the biggest challenge of it all. So, how to learn to hunt, you got to be mindful of what you're trying to learn, uh, what you're trying to hunt, where you're trying to hunt it, what time of year you're trying to hunt it, and who else might know this stuff. You'd be amazed at how many times you're at work. You can, there's easy ways to just drop hints that you're trying to learn this stuff. And it's the best way to do it is to find hunting partners. So if you're at work or you're at the gym or you're out hanging out with your friends, just mention, hey, I'm getting into hunting. Just say it. Don't even, don't mention, hey, I'm getting a gun. Don't don't freak people out. People always get freaked out when you say something, things like that. But say, hey, I'm getting into hunting. And they'll be like, oh, my cousin hunts. Really? Where does he hunt? Where does he live? Oh, well, he hunts actually around here, but he lives down Toronto. Uh, that or wherever he may be or they may be okay well get them in touch with me or hey oh actually i hunt there's uh there's this a great story one of my favorite stories one of my longest hunting buddies that i love to go hunting with is a guy named adam uh adam if you're listening hi buddy uh adam was a guy i was a i was actually his employee for a while when this happened and he called me into his office and I came in expecting to get, you know, chewed out or told I did something wrong or whatnot. And I come in and I sit down and he's kind of just finishing getting on the phone with somebody. And he turns to me and goes, so I bought a gun or I want to buy a gun. And that's all he said. I was like, uh, why? Now, to be, to be frank, this is, this is Adam. Adam was a guy I met who had a Jeep. I think it was a Wrangler. Indigenous like me, but dressed, you know, kind of preppy. Stayed mostly in town, and the first time he ever saw me around the teepee that we had at the university that we both were working at, and I was a student at at the same time, 
I had a knife on me. He says, are you sure you're allowed to have a knife here? I don't think you're allowed to have a knife here. So put that into that, that guy was saying to me, Hey, I think I want to buy a gun. And so I was very confused. I'm like, what, why would you like to buy a gun? I'm thinking, does he want it for home defense or something? I, I don't really know how to respond to that. He was like, well, I just finished my hunter safety course. and I got my license last week. Like, oh, you want to learn to hunt? Well, that's a whole different story, buddy. Well, what do you want to hunt? And he said, well, I want to learn to hunt. Let's, well, what can I learn to hunt right now? I was like, well, we're getting into waterfowl time. He goes, yeah, I'd love to go hunting ducks and geese and stuff. I'm like, awesome. Okay, well, let's get you a shotgun. And we got him a shotgun. And we started to hunt together. And I'd known him at this point for about three, maybe four years. But since then, I've known him for five or six years now. And I've known, I know him better and closer. And I consider him a brother. I love Adam to death. And I would go above and beyond to help him in any way possible. I would have before too, because I liked him before that. But because we had the time to actually get together and we've commiserated on many occasions, we've suffered in rainfall. We've suffered in freezing cold, waiting for geese to show up. He was there for uh, moose hunting and deer hunting and duck hunting and uh, everything I could think of even small game for squirrel and rabbit and such. We've gone out and it's, it's one of the few things that we really have in common. He, he doesn't listen to the same kind of music I listen to. He's not really too much into bushcraft and camping though. He's not opposed to it all. Uh, uh, we don't have similar jobs. He works in a different industry than I do. He works in education uh, for post-secondary education. I work in survival training. So there's not a lot of overlap in our usual day-to-day lives. But because we both hunt, we've gotten a chance to get to know each other better. And I've been able to share tips and tricks with him. We've got a lot of funny, very funny stories that would only make sense to him and I and a few sh- uh, close friends and are just amazing experiences that we've had together. And that's really what I'm trying to recommend. If you're trying to learn to hunt, just ask. Ask out loud. When you're having lunch break with your coworkers, or you're, you know, uh, working at the gym with your buddies, and you just say it, or you're hanging out with your friends at the bar, or you're hanging out with your friends at their place, around a bonfire, you're out camping. This is a bushcraft podcast. You might be out camping with people. And you just pitch it out loud. Just say it out loud. I'm getting into hunting. I got my license. I got my firearms license, my hunting license. I don't really know how to hunt, though. Just say it. And I almost guarantee you that at some point, the more you ask that, the more you bring that up as a conversation, you'll find someone who wants to take you out hunting. And that's where you're going to learn. You're not going to learn this from watching TV shows. You're not going to learn this from watching YouTube. You're going to learn a lot of cool tips and tricks, but the nuances of hunting you're going to get when you're out in the bush. Just like we talked about in our episode about knowledge uh, and learning. You're going to learn this stuff best from learning from people's firsthand accounts with you and their experiences. That's the best way to learn. Adam is one of the best waterfowl hunters I know today. And starting six years ago, we went on like a two-year dry spell because we could not, we just couldn't bring a goose or a duck close to him, period. And then one day, he, we, we quote-unquote broke the curse, and he dropped uh, a wood duck. And the next day, we bagged geese. And the next day, we bagged mallards and teals. And it just snowballed, you know? And then about uh, around the same season, I think it was later that season, 
he bagged his first deer. I wasn't there for it, but I was the first guy he called because he then realized he didn't know how to gut a deer. <laughs> he had never gutted a deer. Uh, his cousins and him got it, mostly gutted as best they could, uh, but he wasn't quite sure if the, it was going to be clean meat and everything else. And so I walked him through the next little tips to, of what to do, washing it out, hanging it up, making sure it's dry, all that kind of stuff. And so a lot of beautiful things come out of it. So don't be afraid to ask. Now, I will put a caveat to that. As soon as you start asking, especially you work if you work in an urban or suburban area, or you work in a city, or you work in a in an office, if you bring up that you're getting into hunting, there will be some pushback. There will be somebody at some point that is also going to tell you that you shouldn't hunt. That is where you're going to have to look deep into your ethics and why you choose to hunt. Why are you choosing to hunt? What brings you into hunting? What makes you de- what made you decide that hunting is the way to go? If it's just because you want to kill some stuff, <clears throat> you got to look a little deeper because that will be uh, that could be questioned in a lot of different directions. But if it's because you're like me, where you want to find a more ethical way to bring meat home, that is a conversation you can start to have. For me. <clears throat> why I choose to hunt is because I have three options. There are three basic options I can take. The first is don't eat meat. Okay. That's the first option. Don't eat meat. Don't participate in any meat consumption. Okay. That is very difficult for me. Uh, I have certain amino, uh, amino deficiencies that require protein that is most accessible from meat there it is cost prohibitive for me to not eat meat for me so that leaves me with two options for me i can't be vegan i can't be vegetarian i'm not opposed to those lifestyles if you who are listening are vegan or vegetarian this is not me saying that what you do is wrong in any way shape or form i support your decisions to do live that lifestyle however For me, I cannot live that way. And I cannot choose to live that way economically. It doesn't work. I live very, very hand-to-mouth. I do not have a lot of money. And because of the amino acid deficiencies that my body has, I need certain proteins. And that's flat out what it is. So my two options beyond that are buy meat or get meat. If I buy meat, there's a good chance, no matter what I try, if I'm trying to stay affordable, I'm going to be contributing to agribusinesses that are massive and they're shoving chickens into small boxes. Cows are being stripped of their calves and forced to be fed, uh, forced to be milked and all that kind of stuff. And there's all these huge factory farming issues that I can't support. There's a reason I have a massive garden planted in my backyard right now. There's a reason... I hunt and it's because I can't support big businesses that do in my eyes horrible things to animals this is no judgment towards farmers though I was raised with farmers my mother's side of the family were beef farmers my great uncle Allison my great uncle Brian they were they were beef farmers and they loved their cattle they stopped beef farming a few years back uh, uncle Brian passed away of course but uncle Allison uh, stopped beef farming and stopped farming in general because it's just cost prohibitive now. 
to be able to stay ethical and be able to stay small business, it's too cost prohibitive. They, they lost too much money in it, and so he's retired from it. So the other option I have is to go to small farms that have organic, pasture-raised, lived-a-good-life kind of animals, and that's not cheap. I want to support them, and when I do buy meat, that's who I target, is I try to support local farmers who are raising animals in a good way, that I can see the animal, I can see that they're healthy, I can see that they are happy, and I can choose to go that route. But I don't have the money to be spending that for every burger and every steak. So the final option is procure meat myself through fishing, trapping, and hunting. And that's the route I take because I know that those animals on the land have lived their lives. I'm not going to say that they lived a better life. You know, there when you there's a lot of like this romantic notion that animals in the wilderness live in a utopian paradise and us hunting them is better than than killing animals on the farm who are trapped in boxes and being tortured. The, a deer has the ability to evade a hunter very easily because their life is surrounded by death every day. There is very, I believe it was Stephen Ronella in a podcast a few years back who brought up the fact that there is very few people that he knows that have seen a dead body. I know three people. In everyone, out of everyone I know, I know three people that have openly admitted that they've seen a dead body. Three. I know hundreds of people, thousands of people, and only three of them have mentioned that they've seen a dead body. Then Stephen compares, how many dead deer do you think a deer has seen in their lives? A lot. You now go to smaller prey animals like squirrel and rabbit. They see dead rabbits and dead squirrels a lot. Whether it's a roadkill, whether it's a predator animal that took them, or it's a human. They're, they are seeing dead squirrels and dead rabbits around them and dead deer around them all the time. These animals know that death is on their doorstep at any moment. That is why they are so sharp-witted. That is why they are so fast. That is why they're so acutely aware of their surroundings and why they're so challenging to hunt. And so when I say that it's more ethical for me to hunt, it's not because I think that animals are living a pure simple paradise life but they lived their life they have every chance in their ability to evade me they have every chance in their ability to escape from me and so I have to work hard to earn that meat <clears throat> that's why it's called hunting not killing I don't get to just guarantee that I'm going to bring back ducks and geese and deer and moose that's not guaranteed. When I go to a store, I'm guaranteed meat. So when I go hunting, I know that I have to be as good as I can be to get that animal. I have to work for it. And so for me, when the blood is literally on my hands, I can at least I can at least see what I did to earn that animal, that duck, that goose, that deer, that bear, that moose, that squirrel that turkey I earned that animal and it was a fair kill 
they had the chance to run away. They had the chance to evade me. They had the chance to not even be where I am. And so for me, in my ethics, I can accept that, but I can't accept big agribusiness, big farming. I can't support factory farming of cattle, factory farming of swine or pigs, factory farming of of, of fowl like chickens. I can't support it. I, I try not to support it whenever possible. And so for me, I choose to hunt. That's that's the choice I make. And I see my impact every time I pull that trigger. So at the end of the day, I have to learn to live with myself and I have to accept what I do. There's no remorse. There's a glimmer of remorse when you first see the animal crumple and fall, whether it's a goose or a turkey or a deer. There's a, there's a hesitation moment that happens and they're like, oh man, that just happened. But it's short-lived. I'll be honest. It's short-lived, if at all. If it's like the third or fourth duck that day, that hesitation's not there. And if it's the second deer, if I missed a deer and I get a second chance, there is no hesitation that second time. I aim, I make sure it's a swift kill, and I pull the trigger. Simple as that. And when I kill that animal, it's joyful. I am joyful. I am thankful. I am full of so much admiration and respect for that animal that I accept what I did because that animal gave themselves to me. It's not in the sense of dominion over the animals. That's not where this is coming from. This is coming from a relationship that I earn with those animals. As a hunter, I take care of wetlands and I take care of forests and ecologies as best as I can to my knowledge and ability to make sure that those animals have a good life and those animals are plentiful and healthy. And if you are questioning the ethics of hunting in wildlife conservation, let's be very honest here. There are more white-tailed deer and wild turkey today than there were a century ago. There are more white-tailed deer today than there were at contact archaeologically and paleontologically speaking. There are more white-tailed deer and wild turkey now than they were at contact with European settlers. The bison were decimated, worse than decimated. They were nearly obliterated. Elk were on the severe decline. Turkey were even on the severe decline. And hunting conservation has brought them back. Period. Period. It wasn't anti-hunting that brought them back. It was hunting conservation that brought them back. And there was an article written by my friend Paul McCarney, which was an email uh, discussion between him, myself, and our mutual friend John Gadozzi, which you can find on Paul's blog as well as John's blogs um, about the ethics of hunting from, con- from the perspective of are we actually conserving animals? And it's an interesting conversation. It's a tough conversation. And I think it's one we're going to have coming up in the fall. I think it's going to be a conversation that I'd actually like to have Paul and John in on to have that discussion. There's actually a few episodes saved that I'll be putting up sometime this fall that are from several years back, about four years ago now, between John, Paul, and I, where we started the original 
podcast, which was called at the time On the Land, but is now the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast. And in it, we talk about ethics. We talk about our perspectives and our experiences with hunting. And if that is something of interest to you, please let us know in the comments of our podcast. Please contact us on the Facebook page, the Canadian Bushcraft page on Facebook. And please put your comments in there of what you would like to hear in our podcast upcoming. Because if you'd like to hear more about hunting, we can definitely do that. If you'd like to hear more about fishing and trapping, fishing or trapping, if you'd like to learn more about firearms or archery or what have you, let me know. Because I would love to bring in some awesome people to have you hear their stories. If you'd like to hear some stories from new hunters that I've taken hunting, that's another great option. I think those are some great episodes we can have. But I want to make sure it's something you want to hear. And so we need to have your voice, my dear listeners of the Dragonfly Nation, uh, my dear, dear friends in the Dragonfly Nation, I need to hear your voices. You need to give me your perspectives. What would you like to hear? What would you like to learn? Beyond hunting, in any subject of bushcraft, what do you want to know? If you want to answer that for me, you can go to the Canadian Bushcraft Facebook page, the one with the Dragonfly logo, and you can answer that question anytime you want by posting that on our page. And with that, and with all the subjects of hunting brought up, this is just a tick on the butt of a polar bear on the tip of an iceberg when it comes down to the information you need for hunting. But I recommend that if you've got your pal, you've got your hunting license, and you've done all the legalities and paperwork, and you pick up all your safety equipment, you have chosen your weapons, find a hunter and go hunting with them. Find a cousin or a relative of some uh, some form that does hunting and go with them. You might not like how they hunt. You might realize that, that you might not like how they hunt. That's okay. Find another hunter and go with them. Learn. My hunting group, we nicknamed it the Young Bucks because it was all guys under 30 and girls under 30, people under 30, really. And uh, now we're over 30, a lot of us, uh, that wanted to get into hunting. But we were kind of tired of the old timers and their gatekeeping. And so we formed a younger group of people who all love hunting and all have their own experience in hunting. And many of them are new hunters. And now we got people that are in their early 30s, their late 40s, uh, uh, early 40s, early 30s, late 30s, some in their 20s, all in this group. And all of us hunt together. All of us work together in that subject. We take care of the land together. We work on biodiversity on the properties that we hunt on. We team up and we plan things out and we do things. We contribute together and we work together. And if you can do that same thing, I highly recommend it. And do everything you can to get into this amazing realm that we have that I call hunting. That we all call hunting. And if you want to get into hunting, do so. You've got some time. Hunting season's around the corner, though, so do it quick. Thanks for listening, listener. Take care. Tread softly. Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. I hope you're enjoying this wholesome, sometimes deranged content. We here at Canadian Bushcraft love creating it. We do this podcast along with our live feed videos and several other projects for free to make sure information is shared far and wide to everyone. But if you'd like to help support this project and our other variety of projects, we would be so appreciative. You can find a link to our Patreon account in the information section of this podcast episode. As a patron, you will gain our undying love and admiration. And depending on the tier you choose, you'll also get a few kickbacks in return. 
These include weekly patron-only articles, monthly one-on-one video sessions with myself or other staff to help you with the skills you're trying to hone at home, and also content such as this podcast one week sooner than the public gets it. You also get to have input on upcoming episodes as well as any future videos we produce. As a small business who wish to remain sponsor-free, we appreciate any and all support from our fans and followers. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a good day.